Good afternoon and welcome to the Daily Maverick Show. My name is Greg Nicholson and it's been a crazy week in news. Um, seems like at some, at some points this year it feels like the year's never going to end, but it is coming to an end and we've only got about 30 days, I think it is, until the ANC's National Elective Conference. We're going to be talking about some of the issues in ANC in the run-up to the conference and I'll have two guests joining me in studio today. First of all, um, Richard Poplack, Daily Maverick journalist, who is rushing into studio right now. As I said, it's crazy times and not much free time for us journalists. But in studio already, I've got Professor Raymond Sutner. He's a scholar and political analyst. He was a political prisoner for, um, for his activities in the ANC-led liberation struggle. Currently, he's a part-time professor attached to Rhodes University and an emeritus, emeritus professor at UNISA. You can also see some of the articles, some great analysis that he does. You can catch it either on the Daily Maverick website or his own his own website. I think it's RaymondSutner.com, is it? Yes. As well as the Polity.co's. It comes from Polity originally. Those websites. Welcome, Raymond. Thank you very much for having me. So, with all the crazy news that's going on this week, one of my favorite sort of events was last night. When I'm not sure if you caught it, but President Jacob Zuma gave a rare interview on his favorite his favorite broadcaster. Stage capture, yeah. That's right on ANN Seven, and I have to say I enjoyed it because although it was extremely light, it was it was almost political satire. It was so funny that that he had he wasn't asking difficult questions. He almost seemed delusional in some of his answers and his. His complete willingness to ignore all the, all the facts that are out there. But one of the things he said was that he doesn't want to evaluate his term in office. He thinks the public, the citizens should do that. So let's start with you, Raymond. Let's start here in studio. Yeah. Look at, looking back at his term as ANC leader and leader of, of the Republic, in a few sentences, what's, what's your view on President Zuma's performance? Well, you know, um, what I find interesting is that we have a massive crisis and the president seems unfazed by it. There's a crisis which ought to see him behind bars, not just for the 783 charges, but also for the state capture claims. And he seems unfazed by it. We have a massive debt. We have a crisis of momentous proportions. But the people who are evaluating uh, Jacob Zuma, which you asked me to do, don't have the capacity to remove him. I'm not talking about us as analysts, but I'm also talking about there is not yet a force capable of removing uh, Zuma, because even if the ANC conference in December elects someone who he doesn't want, he will remain president of the country. So my evaluation... I don't really want to be focusing on the personality of Jacob Zuma, but what I do believe is that we are in a stalemate in South Africa where uh, there is a crisis of governance, where there's a massive debt, uh, there's a malfunctioning of just about instit- every institution of sta- state, but there is not yet a power capable of removing uh, of, of resolving these questions. I don't think that the power will come from within the ANC, although the ANC may be a component of such a resolution. I don't think it's going to come from a DA-led coalition alone. I think that we have to look towards more long-term uh, building of forces 
from inside and outside of Parliament. Let's, as we wait for Richard, talk a little bit about these forces. So it's often talked about we need sort of greater mobilization and a, a more active citizenry. We need organization building. We need uh, more consensus building um, and, and a more long-term vision uh, for, for general South Africans from different political parties from within within the alliance and the movement. But you were there in, in the early 90s when, when we came from, from a period where there was a very strong force in society, a very united force. What happened when you look back at that when it seems to have fractured or been perhaps demobilized? Is that something, I'm not sure if regret is the right word, but in hindsight, is that something that has gotten us into this predicament that we're in today where we've got a president who seems unfazed by the crisis we're in and there's very little that can be done about it. Um, I think that there is a tendency to romanticize what there was before Zuma. That is my problem with the ANC stalwarts. They seem to suggest that we must return the ANC to some pristine quality which has been ruptured through... Uh, the presence of this uh, perverse type of president. I think that we must remember that Jacob Zuma emerged from the ANC. So there is something in the ANC, and including some people like myself who were in the ANC, we have to ask ourselves, what did we contribute to making this possible? I did oppose the Zuma rise from the beginning, and that is why I broke with the ANC and the Communist Party. Uh, but um, in the 1990s, it wasn't as clear as all that. You must remember the ANC was unbanned after 30 years, had to be rebuilt from a number of different strands. People came in with varying degrees of induction into what the ANC uh, signified. But even then, when I was involved, we used to argue over what the ANC meant. And one of the features that has happened in the 20, 30 years since the ANC has been unbanned is that the ANC has become depoliticized, so that you don't really have political debate. You have uh, what they call factions in the past used to relate to who's on the left, who's in the center, who's on the right, who believes in armed struggle, who doesn't believe in armed struggle. Now what they call factions are people who are close to certain individuals in leadership positions and may provide benefits to other people. So we've got to understand that any remedying of the problem that we find ourselves now in is requires a repoliticization, and we've got to look at what we have at the moment. We have people going out into the streets, but after the demonstration, in many cases they don't see one another ever again. And building organization means that you have to have a way of an ongoing relationship between people who believe in something. And you take what they believe in and you build on that. Find out what are their concerns beyond what they demonstrate on. And you see where they are located. Maybe they are professionals. But we also see now the presence of business in demonstrations. 
You have rural people. You have school uh, people at school or universities. All of these people have got distinct interests. And building an organization which has a national scope means that you listen to the interests of all of these people. And that is what we tried to do in the 1980s and in the early 1990s, and that has more or less evaporated. But as a natural phenomenon in the sense that when a political movement goes into government, there tends to be a gap between the organization of the party and the party in government. You saw this in Britain, and there is now a counter trend with the rise of Jeremy Corbyn, who, where the Labour Party membership is now becoming a powerful force as it was in the early days. And in much of social democracy, the membership was a powerful force in early days. The Labour Party in Britain is now apparently the biggest party in Western Europe. And that has happened through the so-called unelectable Jeremy Corbyn. So I think when we look at Corbyn, the Corbyn phenomenon, the Bernie Sanders phenomenon, we have some uh, knowledge of those phenomena ourselves in South African history. We've got to go back to the connection between uh, not necessarily members of a political party, but people who are concerned about something and various organized forces that can uh, drive them towards uh, goals that they have participated in creating. You see, at the moment you have EFF or Save South Africa saying, let's march. People go along. But the people who go along must themselves make an input. That was what happened in the 1950s in the ANC when they created the Freedom Charter. People contributed towards it. And people have to have a sense that they belong and they are part of what happens. So are we talking then about, you know, it seems like almost a natural byproduct of the, sorry, Richard's just coming to studio. Thanks, Richard, for disrupting. That's what I do. I disrupt. <laughs> no, no, he's a very um, uh, coarse disruptor, you know, <laughs> saying to my wife that every second word is bullshit and things like this, so that I've, you know, I'm going to find myself in this coarse company. Yes, exactly, but we'll try to keep it clean today. Try to keep it clean. PG all the way through. No, that's never. That's, that's, that's not, never that's happened, but we'll, uh, we'll see how it goes. We'll see how it goes. Great to be here. Thanks, Richard, for coming Thanks. in. Yeah, yeah, not at all. So, so we started off by talking a little bit about the ANN7 interview last night. I'm not sure if, sure if you it saw it. Beautiful. It was beautiful. One of my yeah. favorite moments of last week, and... <laughs> I was asking, I was asking Raymond just now, president, the president Zuma asked us to, that he said we should evaluate his term in office. He mm-hmm. doesn't want to, he doesn't want to describe his successes, although he no. named a few, a few new departments that he opened. Mm-hmm. So in a few sentences, we'll give you the opportunity as well, Richard, as a, as a citizen, let's start here. What do you think? What do you think of the president's performance? Well, I don't think it was a particularly coherent performance. Um, it didn't, <laughs> you know, it didn't put him in a, I mean, what, what would have been nice if he, is if he'd sort of come prepared and perhaps made an attempt to sum up his legacy, such as it is. Um, I mean, I suppose that you can make a case for anything. I suppose Jacob Zuma could make a case for the past uh, eight years. Um, not a particularly good one, but, uh, hey, uh, it it just seemed it was actually maybe the quintessential ANN seven moment. Um, 
it's exactly what the what the station has been created for complete incoherence and an utterly nonsensical embarrassing interview <laughs> given by the president but isn't it in, isn't it a sense of his power and our powerlessness that he doesn't actually find it necessary to give a coherent explanation for what he's doing. And I was saying to Greg before you came here that the crisis of the moment is that we have everything falling apart, state institutions not functioning, huge debt, etc. And Zoom is completely unapologetic and indifferent to most of these things. I don't think he cares about Jacques Poe's book, but on the side of the rest of us, we haven't yet got a force capable of remedying the crisis. In December, if Cyril Ramaphosa gets elected, which some people see as a messianic uh, deliverance, um, Zuma will remain president of the country. And if they visualize a repeat of Tabo Mbeki's recall, they forget that Zuma is not a gentleman who will simply succumb to the demand of his organization. He may well just dismiss Ramaphosa as deputy president. And I think this is the problem that we have at the moment, is that on the one hand, Zuma ought to have a sense of loss of power. He doesn't. No. But, and we don't have a sense of power. Right. I mean, we could be a lot less glib about the CNN 7 interview. You're probably right. Um, there's lots, there was lots to think about there, looking at it a little more seriously. First is, is this sort of bizarre, perhaps, um, catastrophic hubris that comes with, with, with so long an office. Um, Zoom has held, held power within the ANC for over 30 years. Um, clearly this has had an inhibiting factor on how he thinks, how, and how he views the world. Uh, and, and, you know, in that respect, last night could be viewed as tragic, I suppose. Um, the other, the other very telling, um, element of, of this thing was the, the victimization that he, that he sort of took on. It's, it's not South Africans who are the victims of Jacob Zuma's, uh, reign, but, uh, but Jacob Zuma, who is the victim of, of circumstance, which of course is always a little terrifying to see. Um, because you understand that he's not coming to terms with any of this and, uh, we are going to have to come to terms with it by ourselves. I, I have stated as clearly and as unequivocally as I could, uh, on the platforms on which I write, on which I speak in the past little while, that Jacob Zuma is not going to go quietly. Some kind of deal is going to have to be cut to get him and his cronies out of office. Um, one of the things that we promulgated in the, 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 uh, in Daily Maverick to great controversy was this notion of amnesty. Some kind of deal is going to be cut. Is he just going to walk away and wait for Ramaphosa or even Zweli Makiza or even NDZ? I mean, I mean, how can he, there's no one he can really trust not to install a, uh, a thinking national director of public prosecutions in the role after Sean Abrams, who has to go, is gone. He has to cut a deal. That is the next stage of our politics. I'm interested if, if even before we get there, it's very rare that President Zuma does give an interview and he gave one last night. It's also, he seems, he seems to have taken the, well, what's being sort of reported that might actually happen. Quite, quite a bold move to try everyone saying that he wants to implement a fee-free higher education to the cost of an estimated 40 billion rand, which we don't have. Mm-hmm. What's he playing at at the moment? It's, it seems that his, his 
is it sort of is his back actually finally against the wall? So he's trying these populist moves. He's trying to get his name out there. Even even if he sees himself as as a victim, that's a strategy he's used time and time again. Is is there any indications as to what we might think could be in his head in terms of trying to save himself and his perhaps future, or are we just going along with the ride to see what actually happens? Yeah, you know, I didn't watch this um, interview, but what I find uh, about the fees, free fees, is that it illustrates his indifference to the functioning of the state. He no doubt calculates that this is beneficial to him, that it may well be something that wins him the admiration of some people or some such thing, because I don't think Zuma does anything out of generosity. Only person towards whom he is generous is himself. And um, so I can't, like, give precise calculations as to his psyche. But what I would say is that it points to uh, even more emphatically to the dangerous situation in which we find ourselves where we are already practically bankrupt and the president wants to embark on some other scheme uh, for populist reasons, or whatever you want to call it, which will make our situation even worse. And uh, it may be difficult to stop that from happening. Um, what's interesting to me is Gigaba was appointed as um, to carry out his deeds, and even Gigaba in the medium-term budget uh, thing showed the dire state we're in, and gave very piffling re- ways of dealing with this. But that's not good enough for Zuma. He he's. There may, there may be something in it for him that financially that we don't know about because his greed is completely insatiable. Mm-hmm. You would think he has charred enough of our money, but I don't think that his appetite is sated. No, he does not. He no longer makes a distinction between the state and himself, no. uh, the functioning of the state and the functioning of his own appetites. I think those days are long, long, long gone. Um, you, you know, <laughs> Again, the tragedy of this is that the very spirited and very, um, very, uh, meaningful student revolution that was undertaken in 2015 and 2016 that made a principled call for free higher education, um, and a principled call for decolonializing the education system in this country, uh, was perhaps a watershed cultural moment in the history of this country. country. That has now been hijacked for populist politi- political moves um, by a extremely desperate um, executive. There is no correlation between what students were calling for and what Zuma is willing to provide, other than the fact that they accidentally match up. This is a move towards um, acknowledging this notion of radical economic transformation, which is an amorphous um, concept and uh, is sort of paint by numbers. You 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 build it as you go, right? And it's a gift, of course, to uh, his ex-wife, to to NDZ, who uh, he hopes will carry this, who who hopes herself, I suppose, to carry this torch straight through into uh, 2019, should there be a, an election. Um, so I, I guess that's kind of the move. It's it's this notion of raising up R E T, radical economic transformation, as an actual concept. 
that Mkosasana Tlamini Zuma will carry through the electoral conference and into the next elections. Um, it's concretizing, to use a Cyril Ramaphosa term, uh, this notion of RET. Yeah, you know, I'm very old-fashioned, and I believe in organization. And what I think is interesting, you refer to the importance of the student rising. And one of the problems with the student rising is many of them claimed to be leaderless, and there was no identifiable organization. The SRCs were not the organizations to which they um, uh, considered themselves accountable. Consequently, the capacity to have a continuing influence, uh, which is agreed on, was not carried forward. Mm. Uh, you know, when they burnt paintings, uh, they said, no, we're not responsible. But then in uh, tweets and other things, they more or less approved of those things. So what I think we learn from that, but we learn from a number of other things, is that remedying this situation is not going to happen tomorrow. No. It's not going to happen mm-hmm. in December. It's not going to happen in the, through the DA and existing political parties, although they all have a part, in my opinion, in remedying things. What we really need to do is go back to the drawing boards and find ways of uniting people who are outraged, finding out what it is that moves them and put that into some broad program which can be led by respected figures, maybe religious figures, uh, joined with other figures that have uh, a consensual uh, image attaching to themselves. Because the problem is not going to go away just by assuming that the existing institutions will deliver a solution. What is clear is the existing situation, so, uh, institutions have been neutralized. So we've got to find a way of making the power that we have, which is seen in demonstrations, but is not a continuous power because people then go away and they never meet again. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I, I just want to, I found your, your comments about the, the revolution being leaderless to be very interesting because I think what was so striking and so interesting about being on the ground in 2015 and 2016, and I mean, I'm a long way off from being a student and I was never a good one in the first place, um, was how it sort of called or echoed elements of Black Lives Matter and, of course, the Occupy mm. movement, mm. which in its own way formed the core of the leftist insurrection in the Democratic Party in the United States. So so what one could argue that Occupy, a leaderless, essentially leaderless movement, led to Bernie Sanders and, yes. and led to a, a very serious rupture in the left in, in the United States, insofar as there is a left in the United States. Now, what we do know now about the Fees Must Fall movement is that there were actually leaders, and many of these leaders were put there or placed there by the state security agency yes. to to um, deliberately um, flare up these the, these protests, um, which in itself um, calls into question some of the motivations that uh, that that were that were happening on the ground. That said, what was interesting to me. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I certainly can't speak for the students, but just from the research that I did and, and, you know, we spent some time on the ground there was how localized some of the problems were, right? And this comes to the core of how we deal with the future in this, in, uh, of this country and how, and how systemic the breakdown in governance has been. 
some some of the people I was speaking to, the students were the stuff that outraged them was the fact that the food that was on on sale in the quad was not food they were used to and it was too expensive. Right? That itself was was so unwelcoming that you know they couldn't eat on campus. Right? These very localized issues, and this is what politics is. These are localized, localized issues that is completely broken down in South Africa mm-hmm. to the extent that the executive literally. Seems to hold all of the power. We go down from students not being able to feed themselves in the way they want at school to the fees situation being decided in the presidency, circumventing the entire circuit of the national treasury. Now that is a complete governance breakdown and it's terrifying. Yeah, you know, I, I think that some of the points that you are referring to need to be built on um, we have to ask ourselves why is it that fees must fall could feed into the Sandinists in America and why it's not enough that there are some agents um, there are other reasons on the one hand uh, the DA, the Democratic Party in America was discredited in many people's yes. eyes mm-hmm. but the ANC is being discredited is a relatively recent phenomenon, and you didn't have any intergenerational dialogue which could mediate the outrage that the students had, the anger that the students had. Because in the 1980s, if they started burning paintings, parents would have been there to intervene. Mm. Now, the presence of the parents was not visible. On the other point that you're making about food, what is very, very important the power that the Freedom Charter used to have was that it spoke about major questions like the people shall govern, and it spoke about uh, cattle and um, uh, no more cattle dipping, things like this, so that every person could see their own little problems, and they were taught to connect that to the bigger problems. And what do we need to do as writers and what organizations need to do, which I hope will arise, is find ways of listening. You can't – a vision is not the product in politics of a brilliant person alone. It is the product of a person who listens and incorporates in the political vision what those people have said and a direction for remedying it. So when they saw the Freedom Charter, ordinary people used to say they could see themselves in it. Mm-hmm. And that sort of, there's no longer that nexus. Does, is there any ability within the ANC as an organization to listen anymore? Because it seems that, so President Zuma's chosen successor and Kosozana Tlumini Zuma is by implication linked to many of these state capture claims not, not just the broad state capture claims, but many that run down to a provincial, to a local government level. Yet it seems to have no effect on what branches and what politicians are actually saying at all. Yeah, I mean, I, w- I would, I would agree with that. I mean, I don't think there's any capacity to do the kind of groundwork that the ANC was famous for uh, in in back in the day. Um, I think that's gone. I think it's, I think it's gone to extent from all of our politics. I mean, what I find so interesting is that 
um, even the the economic freedom fighters, their 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 work at building structures on the ground, um, they see it as educative work rather than listening to what people want. Uh, they are trying to jam down the throats of people on the ground this bizarre uh, local election manifesto that they've had, building abattoirs in every single uh, in every single municipality. A bit of this, a bit of that. The the the, the ward council is a CEO. His phone must be on. You know, I'm not sure we're 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 capable of generating a politics of listening anymore, and that has catastrophic consequences. Um, the the DA is as is as deaf to what people in this country want as as any party is. I would argue. It's like it's like our economic inequalities stem over into political inequalities, and the divide is too far to bridge. Exactly. Yeah. You see. I think that the ANC is a very different thing in different parts of the country. Mm. Uh, I don't know how alive it is in rural areas, but when I was involved and I went to the rural areas, my experience was very different from Johannesburg mm. uh, because you had teachers there and people who'd been around for a long time, a sort of pure, if I can use an old-fashioned word, pure vision of what the ANC is supposed to be. I'm not sure to what extent that continues because with the poverty in the country at the moment, uh, becoming a councillor for a thousand rands a month has become a way of surviving sure. and if need be something for which you've got to be prepared to kill. Mm-hmm. Um, so my belief is that we do the public a disservice if we remain focused on the ANC alone and the other political parties alone, we actually have to recognize that the ANC may be in its, um, not death throes, but it may be disintegrating. Mm-hmm. Uh, it may continue like the Indian Congress, but be a shadow of its former self. Uh, whether it wins elections or doesn't win elections, it's no longer really a political organization. Um, and we're finding signs in the DA of people jostling for positions and so on as well. So I believe, and I've been through the a period of popular power, I believe that we've really got to build something new. And what is different about the present is that the UDF was an organization primarily for the poor, but you now have the richest of the rich and the poorest of the poor, all being undermined by what is happening at present. So you can build a new unity. It will take time. It will take a lot of listening. And you don't have to, if the ANC wants to come into this, that's fine. If they don't, others must have the patience. You know, when something is terrible, um, that doesn't mean that your answer will be quicker your answer may be slow mm-hmm. because it's, it's so terrible. But we've got to build foundations which don't exist at the moment. If you're just tuning in, uh, you're listening to The Daily Maverick Show. I'm joined by Raymond Sutton and Richard Poplack. You can find Daily Maverick stories on our newsletters, which you can find if you just go down the website and you can sign up to, to all of them. Now, our newsletters are driven by Touchbrace Pro. You can find their website on www.touchbracepro.com. Um, you can give it a try, book a demo. They show you how to use the system. They sign up and have a dual screen with you. There's no commitment, and they, they tailor the, the, the newsletter to all sort of needs and all sorts of company sizes. Now, Raymond, I want to get back to those points in a few minutes. But first of all, I want to hear from you, Richard. 
you had an event in Soweto last night where where Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa was supposed to be announcing his grand plans for his economic vision to sort of bring us mm. out of this morass if he is elected ANC president. Can you just take me through what happened there? Uh, well, yeah, sure. We uh, I showed up at Orlando Communal Hall, Orlando East Communal Hall. Um, I walk in and walking in behind me uh, after a bulletproof land cruiser has has parked is Stephen Kossif from Investec. Uh, some of your good friends, Raymond, I believe yes. these are these are your buddies. Yes, yes, um, yes. Co- Colin Coleman from Goldman Sachs. Nate Coleman from when he was not Coleman. Okay, Sachs. okay. <laughs> uh, Johan Berger, uh, Mark Lamberti. I mean, these are the the wealthiest men in in the country. Mo- uh, Maria Ramos uh, did not grace us with her cre- uh, presence, so uh, there was no female contingent whatsoever. But these are these are you know billions and billions of rands worth of. With the cash walking in right behind uh, their Manchurian candidate, Mr. Sir Ramaphosa, uh, and he proceeded to give a speech in the context of a event that was terribly organised. The sound was wretched. Um, you, you know, it was just the the, the, the sense of the organisation dying in front of your eyes was palpable in this hall. Um, there was a faction in the back of the hall that just wasn't interested in lis- listening. Um, they weren't they weren't disruptive outside of the fact that they were talkative and bored, and rightly so. Um, and uh, Ramaphosa went on and mentioned every single aspect um, of of South African life that is troublesome, and suggested all of these could be fixed with a ten point plan. Um, Doesn't Zuma already have a ten point plan? Yes, uh, and uh, Malusi upped the nine point plan to a fourteen point plan. So if we average the plans out, I think we're at about an eleven point three three point plan um so yeah this was just another you, you know and it's exactly what you'd s- expect from cyril sort of social democracy with a with a light uh, centrist twist um nothing particularly revet- revelatory um you know he he's pitching himself as as this i, I suppose the reason that all these big hitters were there last night was cyril is pitching himself as the negotiator's negotiator the man who negotiated the constitution will now come in and negotiate a new sort of economic cadessa that will link the richest of the rich, to your point, to the poorest of the poor, and uh, we will walk hand in hand uh, into a uh, sh- uh, economic Shangri-La in the very near future. I think I s- saw that he said he can bring the economy up to, I think, 3% growth next year or in the, in the coming right. years and provide a million jobs. A in million the, jobs in, in, six, in six years, yes. Did he explain how, the details, any details of how he plans to do that, or is is at this stage is that he's going to consult well yeah i mean of course there's a consultative element his his main pitch here and while his 10 point plan was relatively comprehensive uh in terms of uh in, in terms of what he'd do with the land well well actually he didn't explain what he'd do with the land the land must go back to the people um uh, the free education is for the poorest of the poor must happen uh, a lot of things must happen and all of this is linked to what to the national development plan of course um, which is in turn linked to the National Democratic Revolution, which is in turn linked to the Freedom Charter. Um, and he opened by speaking about the Freedom Charter. So, um, y- you know, I mean, standard practice. Uh, the, the, the old line that we've heard a dozen times over the course of this, campaign, a thousand times over the course of this campaign is that the ANC has very good policies. They're just not being, um, iterated properly. So that was the speech. It was pitched as his big economic sort of slam dunk. And it was a damp squib. I don't think there was anyone in that hall that was um, 
that was impressed at all. And I bet you that Stephen Kossoff was on the phone with Zueli Mekizi this morning. Yeah, I was, I read your article uh, this morning on this and someone sent me Cyril's speech and I said, please take me off this list. Um, and he said, why am I so grumpy? Uh, because this is such a fine speech. You know, the problem that one has with all the candidates is they're actually not very convincing. No. Uh, and they don't even look like they convince themselves. Yeah. And they don't ha- seem to have a long vocabulary. Uh, they seem to have a series of words which they utter and they don't seem to say them with much conviction. Mm-mm. So I was not myself particularly interested. I've worked with Cyril Ramaphosa. Mm-hmm. And the strength of Cyril Ramaphosa then was that he used to delegate a lot to other people who, and that was, that's good who did things well and so forth. But he's been involved for all these years in, you know, when he got elected to the NEC, he said, I've gone to join the creme de la creme. Now, that was a prelude to the type of fawning that he uh, saw as part of the job. Now, when you've been so much a part of this, how do you convince people that you really are offering something different? The substance is not something different. But what is interesting is that business is wanting to believe in this. CEO of Investec, that's Kosov, Mm -hmm. uh, and the CEO of Woolworths both said, we're hoping that December will see something different and we'll start on a new road. But what they are ignoring is even if Suramaposa or Zueli Mkize are elected, what do you do about Zuma being in the state president, that to me is where all the problems are happening. He can just ignore, he's, as I said, he's not a gentleman. He will just ignore. If the, if the new president will probably not have a huge majority behind him or her, but he will just ignore this. So I just think that business has got uh, playing in a contradictory role. On the one hand, some are joining marches and things like this. On the other hand, they are placing undue weight on the December conference. They need, if they pull the plug on certain things, like when they went to talk to government after the dismissal of Nene, Mm. they showed they had power. And that is the sort of power, along with other sectors, that will get us out of the present mess, not uh, illusions about messianic figures who will arrive and deliver us to a promised land. Raymond, you mentioned how contested this election race is and how the results are quite, but they're likely to be very close. Is there any way that the ANC and Alliance can avoid a split after December? Look, I'm not um, conversant with uh, exactly how close and how contested it will be. All I know is it's going to be very dirty. And uh, with Zuma having the control over intelligence and security, if he believes that his candidates or candidate will not win, they have a number of ways of sinking the conference. Mm-hmm. You can uh, remove the electricity. It's very easy to take it out. You can flood the venue one way or another. The security around it will be accountable to Zumaites. You can drop... Uh, shit all over the venue 
you can do a whole lot of things. Now, if you have to then. I'm looking to, forward to this you, you conference less to, and less. Yeah. Then, then you mm. have to, if you have to move to another venue, uh, how do you move all the delegates to another venue? Obviously, one of the first things you do is you mess up the computer system, which has got the delegates' details. So all accreditation has to be messed up. So there's a whole lot of things. I am not uh, part of the intelligence service, but I can guess out of just off the top of my head here, number of things that they can do to sync the conference. But let's say the conference goes ahead. Uh, there will be a lot of enmity afterwards, not based on ideas like there was enmity between people who supported Tabo Mbeki and people who supported Chris Hani, but it's not those that which was not personality based, it was approaches. So I think the ANC may split, but it may just disintegrate, you know. Uh, it may carry on because, uh, you know, the worst case scenario for the ANC is that you have two ANCs each claiming to be the real ANC. There are a number of scenarios like that. Mm. Uh, I just want to point out you were the first one to say shit. Yes, 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 yeah, yes, yeah. yes, yes. So I, yes, I just, I, I just bring down the, I bring down the level just by being here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah you mm. know, I, I, somehow other, you diffused some of your uh, vocabulary onto me. Yeah, swearing by osmosis. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, I, I, I agree with that. I think, I think the ANC is split. I mean, the ANC is effectively in its, and I would argue that it's in its, it's in its death throes. We just don't know how long this interregnum is going to drag on for. Um, and. Uh, the conference itself, I mean, all bets are off, man. I mean, anything can happen. Uh, literally, anything can happen. Um, I, I, I do like gaming the scenario of, of, of a compromise, of a muddle through, of a nine of the top six going to a top nine, of a compromise candidate like Zueli coming through, who is close to Zuma, but is also seen as someone who can, who can sort of lead a coalition of the factions, uh, two deputy presidents. I mean, it's a preposterous notion. Uh, and it would cost the state a fortune, but nonetheless, um, I, I think that's the likeliest outcome should the conference not be disrupted. How can there be a clear Cyril Ramaphosa one? How can there be a clear uh, NDZ one? I think a clear NDZ one is more likely, but um, but uh, you know, some kind of muddle through has to happen, and 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 that's what we'll see. We'll see this giant stumbling to its death rather than you know passing out straight. So if we accept that the ANC and the movement is in decline and our politics are shifting across the across the board, really, Raymond, before you were talking about the need for re- the repoliticization of society, for, for building new movements, but it's the sort of thing we hear quite a bit, you know. Um, I interviewed Mark Haywood on, on the show a few a few weeks back, and he calls for a similar similar sort of building of active citizenry, uh, strengthening of civil society, um, the formation of sort of broad coalitions that can that can provide a new vision. But how is it actually done? Sometimes, particularly in this, I guess, day and age of cynicism, when so much is going on, I think it's easy to look at this, sort of this call and say, ah, that's never going to happen. Everyone's tried different little things like that, but they never seem to work. You see, I don't want to be pedantic, but we've got to draw a distinction between different types of civil society. An NGO like Section 27 doesn't have a membership. A social movement... So many people get that wrong. Yeah. Right. Social movements 
need to be funded by NGOs so that if they are a rural movement, they can have meetings, mm. they can transport members, they can accommodate members, they can have food for them. It's very, very practical things like this. Uh, you know, what is happening with civil society is very, very good things are being done on behalf of the poor. Now, what we need is the poor themselves acting as with Abakhlali in uh, KZN and Western Cape to some extent, or equal education. Organizations like this need to be funded by NGOs and the big funding agencies. We've got to be asking them, are you giving money purely to NGOs and institutes that do litigation on behalf of people? Very, very good work. But when a case is won on behalf of a community, the community does not feel its power. Mm. When the community, if you take now the 1980s, a woman was raped in Port Alfred in the 1980s. Every domestic worker stayed away from work in Grahamstown. They saw the rapists arrested, etc., etc. They got a sense of their own power. Mm-hmm. That was not done on behalf of them by the Legal Resources Center or anywhere else. Now we've got to recover that sense through street committees, block committees, civic organizations, youth organizations, number of these things. I'm not talking about replicating the UDF, but in some ways, as I said, because the richest of the rich are also badly affected, we can build a movement that is very, very broad in terms of the sectoral representation. may not have the mass basis. So I think we've got to disaggregate what we mean by civil society so that the power of people in numbers is brought to bear. The power of people in court cases is a completely different thing, even if supporters are outside the courtroom. Mm-hmm. Look, I mean, one of the things I think the, the civil society, quote unquote, civil society learned, especially with the Save SA initiative, is that they don't have constituencies, yeah. right? They have, uh, they have people who they help. Yeah. Um, but there's a very big difference between the very good work these civil society institutions do. But let's call it what it is. It's charity. Mm. It's charity for the most part. Um, charity and politics are two very distinct things. Um, I, I firmly believe our politics are broken. And the only way to fix politics is to devolve governance down to the community level, right? To break up this, these top-down governance structures to a small, I mean, you can't, you can't devolve national treasury. Trickle down democracy. Trickle up democracy. Yes, yes, exactly right. So that's, that's what we need to start looking at. The the model, and it's, the meltdown is global. We are not by no means the only democracy going through this phenomenon right now. The fact that people feel totally disassociated from the governance structures. They don't understand how anything gets done. None of us understand how our cities work. These organisms that we live in every day, we've, we've lost the, the, the understanding of how our sewage systems work, right? Everything's outsourced to a specialist and everything's outsourced. We're no longer players. We're no longer citizens. We're customers. We're UPC numbers. Right? We basically don't exist. That has to change. It's a fundamental reinvention or, or, or reimagination of our politics. And nothing is going to change until that happens, I, I, I believe. All of this populism that you see, all of this Trumpism that you see, all of this Erdoganism that you see, 
um, Duterte, all of it is a result from people feeling completely alienated from the governance processes that are around them. Richard Poplack, Raymond Sutner, thank you so much. That's all we have time for today. Unfortunately, we have to leave it there. Hopefully, we'll see you both in here soon. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to the Daily Maverick podcast. Please share it far and wide and tune in next week. The Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com.